If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in chapter 4. We want to read this morning verses 17 through 24, and these verses will be the text for our consideration of God's Word this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Please pray with me once more. Father, in the next 45 minutes or so, we pray uh, that you would come by your Spirit and you would make this consideration of your Word good for each and every soul here. Pray for myself that you would turn my strivings into works of grace. You would open all of our hearts to understand your word and to apply it to our lives as you would have us do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Some of you may know I'm a big advocate for the study of church history. Uh, I think that every single Christian, every single child of God, every single disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to the degree possible uh, for each one, should endeavor as much as possible to study church history and acquaint themselves with the ways in which God has worked in ages past. Uh, Because if you're a Christian, uh, church history is your history. And uh, we would do well, I think, to acquaint ourselves with many saints gone before and to learn from the ways in which God worked in their lives and worked in times past. I would encourage each one of you uh, uh, as a sort of a, a commitment for life, a resolution for life, a practice for life, to go ahead and find just one figure in church history uh, and and go ahead and yoke yourself with that individual for the rest of your life. Take them in as something of a personal mentor and counselor and spiritual friend. Just pick one individual at least from church history and seek to read that individual, him or her, over and over again and acquaint yourself with that individual's writings and that individual's biography. I've sought to do that with a few figures and one of them Uh, For me, is John Newton. John Newton is perhaps most well-known for his famous hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. I would uh, venture to guess that every single adult here, and perhaps even most of the children, would be familiar with at least the first line of Amazing Grace. Uh, It's well-known in Christian circles. It's well-known in non-Christian circles. Uh, It's been performed and recorded by uh, diverse artists such as Mahalia Jackson and Johnny Cash. I was at a, a U2 concert about 10 years ago. Some of you didn't know I was that cool uh, to go to a U2 concert. 
of it 10 years ago. I was at this concert in the Georgia Dome. And there were 80,000 people there. And spontaneously, Bono, the lead singer of U2, broke out into Amazing Grace. And with united voice, the entire gathering was able to sing the first verse of that song. I'm willing to guess that not everybody there at the Georgia Dome that night uh, was a disciple of Christ. But nonetheless, the song is just so well known. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. What's not as well known as the song Amazing Grace is the man behind that song, John Newton. Uh, John Newton is known to church history as a man who was uh, a a fruitful pastor, in many ways a godfather to the evangelical movement in England in the latter part of the 18th century. Uh, He was an affected and fervent pastor and shepherd, just uh, wrote copiously letters to individuals and had such a pastor's heart. A pastor of one of the largest churches in London, one of the premier churches in that day and age. He was a spiritual counselor to many, including William Wilberforce, who was instrumental in uh, bringing about the end of the slave trade in England. What's still even lesser known about John Newton is that prior to his conversion, he was a notoriously sinful man. Uh, He was, of course, a slave trader himself uh, and did things upon those slave ships that I couldn't even repeat in a setting like this because of younger ears. It's hard to imagine more heinous sins that could be committed by any individual. Uh, You may have heard the language cussing like a sailor. Okay, so so John Newton was so profane that even cussing sailors would blush around him and began to ostracize him. He was just such a a, a, a vicious and vulgar man. Uh, He was considered wicked among the wicked and did unspeakable harm uh, to hundreds of people over the course of his life before he came to Christ. And knowing something of his background, of his sinful past, of his old self, doesn't it illuminate the words of that song for you now? Amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, like John Newton. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If anyone in church history knew what it was like to have a past... It was John Newton. And maybe there's some here. You say, oh, I have a past. That makes me ashamed. I encourage you to find a friend in John Newton. Well, well, John Newton perhaps understood better than anybody in the history of the church that to commit your life to Christ fundamentally means a break from your sinful past. It is to be made new in Christ, to become a new creature. Old things are done away with, all things have become new. And John Newton in his life evidenced something of that transformation. And there's, a, I believe, a movie that came out, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace, or perhaps that's the title of the book. John Newton knew that in his own experience. Well, it's exactly that idea, that concept, that fundamental to a Christian profession of faith is discontinuity with the old self. And putting on the new creation in Christ that I want to speak about this morning. And it's contained brilliantly and clearly in our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 24. I want to point your attention again to just verses 22 through 24. We're going to draw three main points for this morning out of these verses. Verse 22. We're called to put off your old self. Which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness 
and holiness. Three points this morning. The first, you're to put off your old self. Secondly, you're to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And thirdly, you're to put on a new self. By far, we'll spend most of our time on the first point this morning. To put off your old self. Verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's in the past and is corrupt through deceitful desires. If you've been with us in this series on the book of Ephesians, I actually remember, it seems now ages ago, but was only probably six or seven months ago, I remember that the Ephesian church was made up largely of Gentile converts. Many of those who were one to Christ were one out of exceedingly wicked backgrounds. Uh, You might remember the account of the founding, the planting of the Ephesian church. It's contained in Acts 18 through 20. I encourage you as background to this series to, to read that passage regularly. We see in those chapters that some in the Ephesian context, in the Ephesian region, were caught up in pagan idolatry. You might remember the story of Demetrius the silversmith. He starts a riot in Ephesus because the word of the Lord prevailed so mightily, the gospel had gone forth, people are being won to Christ, and they're no longer doing business with Demetrius the silversmith. And Demetrius calls this conference of idol makers and says, we got to do something about this Christianity. It's messing everything up. Our prophets are down. Uh, We need to win back our idol worshipers. Uh, Christianity is ruining our business. So we can only conclude that many of those who were won to Christ well, those who were caught up in pagan idolatry and worship. Uh, they were uh, uh, bowing up and down before silver shrines. And we read that, that once they came to Christ, they rid themselves of those shrines. Many in the Ephesian context were caught up in black magic and the occult. Uh, one of the amazing things that was seen uh, in the revival that came to Ephesus is that large numbers of people took their books of black magic by which they sought to commune with spirits and commune with the dead. And after coming to Christ, they took those books and had a mass bonfire. I think it says something like 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of those books that were burned. Mass conversion among those who had been enslaved to dark arts and black magic. And then there are also those, we assume, who were caught up in all sorts of deviant sexual practices. Uh, The goddess Artemis was the god of the Ephesians. And uh, connected to the temple structure of the goddess Artemis were a number of temple prostitutes. And uh, some, perhaps, who were worshippers there in Ephesus made use of those prostitutes. And then they came to Christ. And we can infer from what's said in the book of Ephesians, many had to leave this sort of immoral lifestyle that they were living in. Well, I say all that to say, many people in Ephesus could probably sympathize with John Newton, probably understand what's meant to put off the old self. There was a past there that they were called to shun. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, a passage we've gone to again and again describes in the most indicting manner the state of all those who were outside of Christ, the Ephesians in particular. Paul says, Ephesians 2, verse 1, You were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he says, it wasn't just you. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's important to note that this description is not only the description of pagan Ephesians who acted out in their sin in notoriously flagrant ways. 
This is a description of the condition of all those who are outside of Christ. This is a description of the rebellious eight-year-old who regularly disobeys mommy and daddy. This is a description of the self-righteous churchgoer who has never surrendered his or her life to Christ. All of us fall under the sweeping indictment of this passage. Well, then in Ephesians 4, 17-19, some of our texts this morning, we're given a fresh description of sinful humanity outside of Christ. Look at those verses again with me, if you would. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now recognize this. Paul's describing uh, the way the Gentiles walk out there in the world. He's not um, talking about something that's detached from the experience of these Ephesians. For many of those who met in the Ephesian church, this was biographical information. This was their background. This was their past. Because he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So we can only conclude the description Paul gives is a description of how many in the church were living prior to their conversion to Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, remember how you lived previously and don't live that way anymore. Here we see perhaps more loudly and clearly than any other text in the Bible that following Christ requires a decisive break from our sin and our sinful past. He's saying, remember what you were. Look at it full in the face and turn away from it. Don't live like the Gentiles do. Now let me just say something briefly about that phrase. Don't live, don't walk as the Gentiles do. I think that Paul is in essence saying, don't live like the world. Don't live like the prevailing culture. He's saying the world and the surrounding culture are marked by futility and sinful self-indulgence and the people of God are to look different. I could say a similar thing to you today. Don't walk as Americans walk. I mean, you are Americans, but we're talking about the prevailing American culture. In futility in their minds and sinful self-indulgence and materialism, whatever it is, don't live like the world lives. Don't adopt her patterns of thought. Don't adopt her evil practices. Don't live and walk like everyone else, but be different. Mm. Now, this brings us to a very important point that I think we need to recover mm. in our day and age. Fundamental to the New Testament's portrayal of the church is that God's people are to look different from the world. And I'm not sure where this strand of biblical truth has gone. You never hear this anymore. But my friends, whatever happened to the concept of worldliness, it is a thing. And we're to separate ourselves from it. 1 John 2, 15-17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We as Christians are to shun worldliness. We are called to live in a manner utterly different from the prevailing culture. That's the essence of what Paul is getting at here in our text. Now, I want us to briefly consider the descriptions Paul gives to the way the Gentiles walk presently, which is the way these Ephesian Christians had walked previously. 
Okay? Let's consider some of these phrases Paul uses looking on in Ephesians chapter 4. First, he says they walked in the futility of their minds. You know what that word means? Futility? We don't, we don't use it a lot. Paul says they walked in the futility of their minds. What is futility? Essentially, futility is pointlessness. It's emptiness. It's nonsense. It's vanity. What did this look like for the Ephesians? Well, it looked like people bowing up and down before a silver shrine. Something that was liquid metal moments prior became a silver object, and people would physically bow up and down in front of it. That's futility. That's nonsense. That's silliness. That's emptiness. It looked like people trying to access spirits through books of magic. I don't know exactly what this looked like, but perhaps there was someone who went through these communities selling magic beans by which you could converse with the dead, and they bought into it. And they tried to access evil spirits. That's futile. That's nonsense. They were walking in the futility of their minds. It looked perhaps like an angry mob in Acts 19, chanting over and over again, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's futility. Now we can laugh at that all we want. Say, that's just ridiculous. That's silly. We're enlightened. We're past that sort of behavior. But is the prevailing culture of our day any better? I contend the world is still marked by futility, though it may look a little different. But it's still there. What does futility look like in our day, in our prevailing culture? Well, perhaps it looks like believing that there is no God at all. Living a life devoted to storing up material possessions that you cannot bring with you to your grave. For the life of me, I can't understand why people live that way. Heard some actor recently say you can't bring a hearse to your grave, right? I mean, I mean you die and it's over. That's your worldview. Why would you think storing up material possessions is the end-all, be-all of life? Maybe thinking that I can have as many illicit relationships as I want with no consequences. That's futile. That's emptiness. How about this? Suggesting that gender is a social construct. Not a matter of biology, it's just a state of mind. That's transparently ludicrous. It's nonsense. That's futility. Suicide is futile. Believing that progressivism will solve all of man's problems is futile. Existentialism is futility. Postmodernism is futility. Godless hedonism is futility. Believe me, futility is alive and well in our day. Pursuing emptiness and nonsense and vanity, it's all alive and well. All of these things are absurd. If you actually undertake to consider their first principles or take them to their logical conclusion, they're futile. You take modern theories of naturalism, humanism, and atheism, you push them to their logical conclusion, and you get something like this quote I'm about to read to you. And, and I'll just tell you, this was not written by some social deviant on the outskirts of culture, okay? Listen to this quote. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Again, that was not some recognized psychopath who said that. That was Peter Singer, esteemed scholar and professor of ethics at Princeton University, formerly taught at Oxford. This man is esteemed in the eyes of the world. This is futility, the futility of a genius. The futility of a man who probably got a perfect SAT score. And yet is spouting forth nonsense. 
transparent futility and emptiness. Maybe you're familiar with Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher that influenced generations after him. He had his famous quote, there are no facts, only interpretations. And I'm left wondering, do I receive that as a fact, (laughs) Mr. Nietzsche, or is that just some interpretation? And maybe people don't buy into that as much anymore in the same way. Maybe people aren't as brazen as Friedrich Nietzsche. But we hear this all the time, even, even in the language and rhetoric of our future commander-in-chief, Miss Oprah Winfrey, okay? who loves to talk about his truth and her truth and your truth and my truth and how no one can judge one another's truths. That's futility. There's only the truth. There may be your opinion. But there's only the truth. There are facts. There's objective reality. There are absolutes. And that's transparently clear. You hear echoes of this in college campuses across the country, in conversations, in coffee shops, and sadly even in homes as parents seek to instruct their children. This is the nature of futility. This is the logical end of a worldview without God. Listen, futility is stupid. It's pointlessness. It's nonsense. It's a dead end. And I want to say something just as an aside to young people here. Listen to me. Uh, I recognize that you're under a great deal of pressure to adopt the world's perspectives, uh, especially in school, especially in college, okay? And so, for example, you are pressured now more than ever to believe the lie that gender is a social construct. It's not a matter of biology. Gender is a state of mind. And so I could be a man if I want. I could be a woman if I want. I could be both at the same time. I could be neither at all. Gender is a state of mind. And so uh, if I want to today say that I'm a 60-year-old Indian woman, who are you to tell me that's not so? Are you suggesting, you arrogant person, that my biology limits me? I feel like a 60-year-old Indian woman this morning, and I'm going to live that way. And if I could be a 60-year-old Indian woman, I could be a squirrel. I could be cream cheese. I could play power forward for the Golden State Warriors. Why should my biology limit me? I self-identify as Draymond Green for the, for the Warriors. We young people, I'm just trying to trace out how silly this is. I mean, ask questions of worldviews. Think critically. I want you to see that the end of these things is futility. It's nonsense. And listen to me, sin is futile. You give your life over to sin, over to rebellion against God, and it will lead you to futility. It will lead you to a dead end. It will lead you to emptiness. And so I beg you, pursue the truth of God, the truth as it is in Jesus, and say no to these futile things. Don't be embarrassed to stand up in your classroom and say, that's not true. I won't believe that. I'm not going to sign that statement. That's futile. That's Nonsense. Well, this is the nature of futility. And young people, everyone here, recognize this is the result of sin. Sin always leads to futility, to pointlessness, to nonsense. This is important for all of us. When confronted with a sinful action or thought or decision, say to yourself, this is futile. This is transparent nonsense. What am I ultimately going to get out of this? Absolutely nothing. Sin is always futile. Sin is always irrational. But then moving on in our text, Paul says that these Ephesians were darkened in their understanding. For those outside of Christ, everything is dark. It's like they cannot see right in front of them. There's a spiritual blindness that's there. So the truth is held before them, but they cannot understand it because there's only darkness there. They can't see. 
By the way, just as a, a plug for our adult equip class, Nathan Streer in a couple weeks is going to be considering this very issue as it pertains to evangelism. How we evangelize a culture of people who we recognize, according to the Bible, are spiritually blind. I heard the most wonderful description recently by a woman who was exposed to false religions in her childhood, in addition to being exposed to Christianity. And the way she described it was that all the other religions simply seemed dark. There was a darkness that characterized these religions. And though as a child, maybe it was something of a superficial observation at that time, there was a a quality of light surrounding Jesus and Christianity. Well, isn't that so emblematic, reflective of what we see in the Scriptures? Jesus Christ brings light. And so many of us can testify that before we came to Christ, we lived in darkness. And it's like when Christ came, someone turned on the lights, and all of a sudden we could see, and our blindness was removed. The darkness was gone. Well, Paul goes on to say of these Gentiles and these Ephesian converts, looking back on their past, he says they were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, don't be thrown by that word ignorance. Paul's not using it in the way we so often use it. This is culpable ignorance. It's not that they don't have enough information. This is hardness of heart. This is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 puts it. I don't see because I don't want to see. I don't know because I don't want to know. I want my unrighteousness. I want my sin. And so I suppress the truth, which is transparently known in creation. It's an obstinate rejection to the truth of God. Listen, when the psalmist says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, he's not talking about someone who got a 200 on his SATs. It's not a lack of information the psalmist is talking about there. He's describing not someone who lacks intellectual capacity, but rather someone possessed with ethical and moral revulsion at the thought of submitting to the truth of God. When you see the word ignorance, don't think Paul is simply chalking it up to a lack of information. Paul is referring to a self-conscious choice to remain in darkness and to harden one's heart and to embrace ignorance. So Romans 1.21 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. John 3 verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. It's a matter of choice. It's a matter of loving something more than God. It's a matter of self-conscious rebellion. And subsequently, consequently, the text goes on to say, in the next phrase there, they have become callous. They have become callous. So my uh, grandfather used to work on cars a lot. He used to work with tools, he used to work with his hands. He was always out in the garage working hard. And his hands, through overuse, through working, through friction, became callous. That is, the skin was rough, the nerve endings had been numbed down because he was always working with tools, always beating up his hands. It's kind of gross, but he would, he would love to play this trick on his grandkids. He would take his calloused hand and he'd hold it over a candle, a lit candle. He couldn't feel a thing. Because his hands were so callous. They were so worn down. The nerve endings were numbed from overuse and from friction. Well, this is something of the idea Paul's conveying here with respect to human conscience. Through, through frequency of sinning, through again and again suppressing the conscience and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, their hearts became calloused. 
such that that, 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 that that prick of conscience that tells them this is wrong, they stop hearing that, they stop feeling that. The nerve endings of their heart and their soul and their conscience had been so worn down from sin that they could no longer feel the pricks of conscience. They had become callous. And now, for those who are outside of Christ, those who are calloused, nothing is off limits. And that's what the next line goes on to say. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I'll tell you, that was John Newton. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This last statement has to do with extent and degree. Nothing is ultimately off limits. Every kind of impurity is in play. You know, it's interesting. We see headlines about this Me Too movement. You know about the Me Too movement? We see lots of headlines about sexual assault and misconduct. It's tragic. And you might be fooled into thinking that this is a problem for only a small segment of the society. Powerful celebrities and rich people who think they're immune to the consequences of their actions. However, I would contend that if you remove the legal restrictions and the social stigmas that suppress this kind of behavior on a popular level, our culture would be marked by sexual anarchy. There are vast numbers of people, not everyone, but there are vast numbers of people who don't commit sexual assault not because of some kind of moral aversion. It's because if they do, they'll end up in jail and they won't have any friends. It's not because they find the behavior repulsive. They don't do it because they fear a jail cell, not because they're concerned about right or wrong. And I'll just ask you, brothers and sisters, given statistics about the use of pornography, how could we conclude otherwise? Pornography is perceived to have no consequences. It's anonymous. No one knows about it. It's not illegal. It seems that no one is hurt by it. The statistics indicate that more than half the population of the United States views pornography on a regular basis. And the reason so many people are willing to view pornography is because there are no consequences, they believe. There's no stigma attached to it. But actual assault, see, has consequences. But I'm contending that if you remove those consequences, what do you think will happen? No consequences to pornography and people engage in it all they want. Consequences to sexual misconduct and people are restrained a little bit by that sort of common grace. Well, those who would point in self-righteousness to the perceived perverts in Hollywood and in media may need to look inward. I contend that Paul's argument is vindicated by our culture, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If you follow sin to its logical conclusion, nothing is off limits. Nothing is off limits. Sin has an addictive quality to it. You taste and you taste and you taste and finally you give yourself over to the thing. It's never enough. I have to have more. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But it's not just sexual sin. It's lying. People become compulsive liars. They can't even tell when they're lying anymore. It's vanity. People obsessed with self-image and the approbation of man having to always have their ego stroked. It's like a drug. It's an addictive quality. It's gossip. Having to be in the know about everybody else's business and going on social media and consulting gossip blogs and doing the whole he said, she said game. It has an addictive quality to it and it's displeasing to God. Well, what is to be our relationship to these things? Now, wrapping up these verses, we've seen this black mirror that's held up to the sinful culture. And this was in the background of so many in that Ephesian church. What's to be our relationship to these things as those who are in Christ and those who have been saved by grace? 
Paul's words are unequivocally clear. We're to put them off. We're to put off the old self. Like you put off a garment. He's saying, don't wear these things anymore. These things that mark your former life, make a break from them. Break away from these things. Futility, darkness, ignorance, hardness of heart, callousness, sensuality, impurity. Put them off. Paul is saying we need to learn to say no. Paul is saying remember who you were. You can't go back there. Don't go back there. Eyes on Christ. Look ahead and put to death your sin. So you could imagine the Ephesian woman who was caught up in pagan worship, so caught up in black magic, so caught up in fornication. What would it mean to that individual to put off the old self? This is how she used to live. She comes to Christ. What would it look like to put off the old self? Well, it meant at the least that she had to gather up all her idols and throw them away. It meant she could no longer engage in business with Demetrius the silversmith. It meant she had to take all those valuable books on black magic and burn them. It meant she had to leave those friends who would seek to ensnare her and draw her back into the occult. It meant she had to put an end to her illicit relationships. It meant everything had to change. No more futility, no more darkness, no more impurity. Before I leave this point, it's very important that I point out that we must remember Ephesians 4, 17-19 was written to believers. He's saying, this is how you used to live. And he goes on to describe it, right? See, this was your background. This was your past. This is not a description of how to talk to lost people about their sinful state. You know, you're just godless and blind and walking in futility. There may be some context in which to say that, but Paul's mainly trying to draw Christians, draw their minds to the ways in which they used to walk. And he describes it in extreme terms. Paul gives this information to Christians to tell them what they were and how they need to never go back there again. So I ask this question. When you look at the black mirror that Paul is holding up to the world, and this description applies to our culture today, and you see these masses of people living in futility and ignorance and sensuality, what should be your response? Christian sitting here today. You look out on the world, futility, ignorance, darkness, greedy to practice every impurity, what should your heart be telling you? Oh, that just makes me sick. Is that the reaction? Disgust? Revulsion? Self-righteousness? Judgment and condemnation? No, we should think that apart from the grace of God, that's me. We can say, that, that's where I was. And if God not snatched me and made me His and intervened and initiated, that's where I would be. And it should move us to compassion. Yes. No place for a Christian snob. No. We're sinners saved by grace, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The only reason... You have not gone down all the same roads that the most wicked people, whoever they are, Harvey Weinstein, or whoever you might think of, is because God in His mercy stopped you and saved you by grace. He didn't pick you out of the bunch because you had a winning personality. He saves us by His grace alone. And the only reason I'm not walking around in futility and darkness and ignorance is because Christ has washed me and changed me and made me new. It's another figure in church history, Robert Murray McShane. Perhaps one of the godliest men who ever lived died in his late 20s. And he said this, I know the seed of 
every sin known to man is in my heart. That's a humble posture. He got that right. Brother, sister, the seed of every sin known to man is in your heart. And the only reason it's suppressed and kept down is by the grace of God and His commitment to change you and to make you new. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century revivalist pastor, said a similar thing in his famous resolutions. He said this, I am resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if no one had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon, Who am I? What should I have been if the Lord in mercy had not stopped me in my mad career? My friend, my brother, my sister, did you have a mad career before coming to Christ? Thank God for His grace that He stopped you and He snatched you and He made you His child and made you new through Jesus Christ. You see sickness and darkness in the world, you ought to say to yourself, I know that same sickness. That same darkness is in me and the only reason it is repressed is because of the grace of Christ. We're running near the end of time. I'm going to fly through the next two points and really just mention them to put them before you. Number two, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Verse 23 says this, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed is a passive verb. It's renewal that is affected by God himself. He has regenerated us and changed us and made us new. He talks about learning Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. They get reference to when we were first converted and we believed the gospel when we were introduced to Christ. The renewal that takes place in our minds and hearts took place when we learned Christ. What does Paul mean by this expression? Well, he's referring to when these individual Ephesians came to believe for the very first time and encountered Christ and were made new by His grace. The scriptures say that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So this is an important point I want us to see this morning. For the Christian, fundamental to a Christian profession of faith, is the truth, the reality that God has made us new in Christ. We're a completely different creation now. Old things are gone. All things have been made new. We have been renewed by God in the spirit of our minds. Therefore, we have to put off the old self. And we have to put on the new man. Fundamental to a Christian profession of faith is a changed life. A renewed life. You learn Christ and everything changes. You learn Christ and you can't avoid a break with who you were. To know Christ is to be changed in the deepest and most basic parts of your soul. It is to be made new. And so Paul says, thirdly, we're to put on the new self, verse 24, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Really, the rest of the book goes on to describe what this new self is. Uh, the subsequent verses will talk about how we're not to lie, how we're to speak the truth, how we're not to steal, how we're to not to uh, go to bed on, on our anger. How we're to be forgiving toward one another. We're going to learn over the next several weeks what the new man is to look like. But suffice it to say for now, the Christian person is called by God as a new creation in Christ Jesus to put on the new humanity. 
and to walk in righteousness and holiness. It's a striking phrase that Paul uses here. He says that we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What's the image here? Well, it's that God is exercising creative work on each and every one of us. He's creating something new. He's like a master painter who's painting a masterpiece and he's looking at something, an original and painting based on that. You might recall Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship, his poema, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. Okay, That's you, Christian. God is doing a work in you. He's creating you and he's looking at something, an original, like a painter might look at a bowl of oranges and paint that bowl. He's looking at something and after that likeness, he's creating, he's doing his work of making this thing new. Well, in our text, what is God looking at? What's the original? It says we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God is looking at himself. That's a profound thought. When God goes to work on your heart and he's seeking to sanctify you and renew you and to make you new, he's looking at himself. Seeking to make you more like God. Fashioning you more after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Could there be a more profoundly encouraging thought that that's the work God is doing in each and every one of us? Well, in closing, I want to draw just a few points of application. The first is to ask this. For you brothers and sisters here, you Christians, do you have a past? Do you look back on your years outside of Christ? You say, yeah, I have a past. I have a host of things that make me ashamed. I have a host of things I so wish I could undo. I so wish I could go back and be done with those things. Do you have a past? Well, you need not be disheartened and discouraged. This text gives you simple instructions for how to view your relationship with your past. Put it off. Put it off. What's done is done. These these converted Gentiles lived in all manner of impurity and sinfulness, but, but now it's gone, now it's over. Put it off. You're made new in Christ. Seek to identify and demonstrate radical discontinuity with who you were. It has always been one of the most glorious aspects of the gospel that we really can start over. You may have consequences that have stemmed from your past and they won't vanish necessarily, but between you and God, you can be made new. Take John Newton's words to heart. You talk about somebody with a past. He said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That ought to be your posture as you look upon your sinful past. And all the things that make us ashamed discontinuity. I'm putting that off. I'm breaking away from that. By God's grace, I've been made new in Christ, regenerated and changed and born again by His love and His grace. Secondly, I want to say to you Christians, in light of this, say no to sin. Say no to the old way of life. Put it off like a garment. And when those thoughts, those temptations creep back up in your mind, suppress them by God's help. We're to put off the old self. Don't let those old things drag you down and attach themselves to you. But like you would rip off a garment, throw it off. And then thirdly, Christian, go to God and subject yourself to His creative work. 
Let Him make you new. His work of renewal. Say to Him, you have carte blanche. You have free reign. I will be yours and yours alone. Cleanse me. Scrub out even the crevices of my dark heart. Give God total access so that He can renew you and fashion you more and more after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And finally, to my unbelieving friend here this morning, if there's one thing I want you to see from this sermon, it's that you can have done with futility. You don't have to live your life in emptiness and in all the moral confusion that pervades our age. You don't have to be subject to all of that. Listen, there are people in this room, if you heard their stories, they have a past. They lived that way before, and they could tell you how Christ saved them from that past. You have things that make you ashamed, things that you think might disqualify you from the grace of God. You don't know what I've done. I've subjected myself to all kinds of impurity. I can't can't throw my lot in with nice, clean, church-going folks. Well, you don't know the stories of some of the people in this room. Listen, we all have a past. And we're sinners saved by grace. God has snatched us out of our mad career and arrested us and made us His. And we're not what we want to be. We're not even what we ought to be. But by God's grace, we're not what we used to be. And we are what we are by God's love and by His grace. And I'm telling you, my unbelieving friend, you can be saved by the same grace. The same grace that John Newton wrote of and spoke of and knew so well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me, like you. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. There's no reason that can't be your testimony. God makes all things new. And despite your sin, despite your background, despite your old self... You can be renewed and born again in the spirit of your mind. And you could put on the new self in righteousness and godliness and holiness. I call you, my friend, to repent and believe the gospel. To trust Christ that he can forgive you from your sins. And that he can make you new and indeed make all things new by his grace. Let's pray together. Great God and Heavenly Father, your grace is in every way marvelous to us. There is indeed no sinner in the world outside of the reach of your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Uh, You have been pleased to save many of us in this room so far from you, so caught up in sin and in impurity and in worldly ways of life. You've been pleased to save us by your grace. You did that for John Newton. You did that for the Apostle Paul. You can do it for anyone here in this place. We thank you. We marvel at the grace of Christ and what by your grace you have made us to be and what you promise to continue to do. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to live as those who have been shown grace. May the gospel of Jesus Christ pervade our thoughts and the ways in which we conduct ourselves. Let us not be Christian snobs. Let us not live in self-righteousness, but help us to, to, to have hearts that burn with compassion for the lost and to say, apart from the grace of God, there go I. May help us to live in light of this grace. May we show grace toward one another, forgiving one another, being tender-hearted toward one another. 
And may we be willing to share this grace with those who need it most, those who are outside of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.